Bismillah walhamdulillah wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah want to welcome you to the first episode of Fiqh Fridays uh, in, Going with the theme of the different episodes that appear on this podcast I figured that uh, Friday starts with F and Fiqh starts with F And so we do a little bit of Fiqh on Fridays um, What I will be reading from is a book that I translated and that I've taught several times called Al-Ajwibat Al-Jaliya Fil-Ahkam Al-Hambariya, which I translated into English as Qaddumi's Elementary Hambari Primer. And you can actually find it on Amazon.com. So if you search for my name, Joe Bradford, or you search for Hambari Primer, uh, it's going to come up on uh, on Amazon.com. Now, uh, the primer in English, I translated with a side-by-side um, uh, presentation of the Arabic in the English. And it's important to remember that uh, in the study of fiqh, in the study of Islamic law, that there is a methodology to learning the disciplines of Islamic studies, and specifically studying the laws and the rules, the ethics of Islam. The scholars that preceded us from the time of the Salaf until today would follow a particular legal school before engaging in high-level discussions about legal principles. And you might be saying, well, what school did they follow before Imam al-Shafi'i? Well, Imam al-Shafi'i learned Imam Malik's school. And what school were the people learning from before Imam Malik? Well, they were learning according to Rabi'at al-Ra'i and Fuqaha al-Madinah. There were seven main Fuqaha of Medina that people would follow. What school were they learning before Abu Hanifa? Well, Abu Hanifa was taken from Ibrahim, from Hamad, and Hamad from Ibrahim al-Nakha'i. Ibrahim al-Nakha'i from the students of Ibn Mas'ud, of uh, Al-Qama and Al-Aswad, and others. And they from Ibn Mas'ud, radiallahu anhu. And so the idea of learning according to a particular methodology in a legal school has its roots in the actions of the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum themselves and their students and their students' students. And this tradition has remained in the Ummah until today. And so this book is specifically about the Hanbali school. The Hanbali school is probably the last in the four canonical Sunni schools of law. Uh, Imam, Malik, uh, Imam Ahmed alayhi, had learned from his Shafi'i. He had debated with Muhammad ibn al-Hasan. Uh, he uh, incorporated, he was from al-Iraq, so many, you'll find much similarities between what he says and what the scholars of the Hanafiya say. And this is not the time to go into the uh, biography of Imam Ahmed, but suffice it to say that this is what we're going to tackle here in this um, 
episode here, the Friday episodes of this podcast. Now I'm debating whether I should do them weekly or bi-weekly, um, but we'll see. I'll see how your response is to this one, and then we'll go from there. Now, why do we study one school and understand it fully first? Well, because if you try to engage in theoretical discussion before building a foundation in the basis of the legal reasoning of those who preceded you, then you're bound to fall. You're bound to fail. You're bound to be struck with pride and pomposity and essentially overstep your bounds. And this is very akin to people who, every time there's a Supreme Court case, they immediately become constitutional lawyers. Every time there's a sports loss, they become sports commentators. Every time there's a social issue, they become uh, sociologists. And the same goes for Islamic law. We have to not be blind to these type of character flaws We have to develop the humility and learn the analytical process that's necessary for the faqih, the jurist, to tackle not just classical issues, but current issues. And we we don't want to just become fuqaha. We don't want to become faqih. We don't want to just become jurists, faqih al-ahkam, jurists of the laws or of the rules. But we want to become fuqaha al-nafs. As the Salaf used to say, He is a faqih, a jurist of the soul. One who understands its ins and outs. Doesn't understand just the law as being procedural, but understands its substance, substantive basis and how that all relates back to the greater ideas of taqwa and the greater ideas of answering the call of Allah and His Messenger. So we're going to do one issue out of this book, and there's 106 of them, so we'll have no shortage of material. Read it, and then uh, explain it a little bit, and then we'll move on to the next issue. Uh, the author starts the book, he says, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Kitab tahara in the name of Allah, beneficent, merciful, purity, or the book, chapter on purity. Now, I want for those of you who have studied the Hanbali school before, you will find extreme, you'll find a lot of similarity between the content here and the content which is found in Yusuf ibn Mar'i al-Karmi's Dalil al-Talib. Dalil al-Talib is one of the foundational texts of studying the Hanbali madhab. Um, it is for those of you who are going to ask, it has not been translated into English. Um, but a similar text, parts of it have been translated by Sheikh Musa Ferber, uh, known as Zadam Stokna. He's also translated a very, um, a very adept and, 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 and competent translation of Akhsar um, al-Mukhtasarat. And I would, re- I would advise everyone after this book to um, read that book. I, I think that, that he's done Qism al-Ibadat, the chapters on worship from it. It's a very good book. Uh, this one covers simply five topics, and that is the ideas of tahara, or the chapters of tahara, purity, of prayer, fasting, zakat, and hajj. So he starts saying, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, kitab al-tahara, in the name of Allah, the merciful, 
Kitab al-Tahara, the chapter on purity. Water. All praise is due to God alone, and may He grace and bless his, Him who after Him there is no other prophet. Question number one. What is purity linguistically and technically? Purity linguistically is cleanliness, and technically it is the removal of ritual impurity and the cessation of actual impurity. Ritual impurity is two types. Greater, that which obligates ghusl, and lesser, that which obligates wudu. What's the author trying to say here? Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Let's talk about plain terms here. Because the scholarly verbiage of books is one thing, and what they're getting at is another thing. And my teachers, um, whether it was in fiqh or usul, and especially in usul, they used to say, when you understand the, the, the issue, then move forward, right? Um, the important thing is understanding and application. In, these, in this podcast, we're not going to go into tafkik al-ibarat. We're not going to go and try and pick apart all of the words. That's another level of study. So he says, what is purity linguistically and technically? Why did he say linguistically and technically? Well, because when you study the law, you need to understand how these words are understood in the Arabic language, and then do they, in their legal context, contain any meanings above and beyond the mere linguistic meaning? So if I say to you salah, right? If I say to you adhan, if I say, let's take adhan for, for example. Adhan, we all understand, means the call to prayer. But in reality, it means just a call. And a call, pronouncement from Allah and His Messenger. On the day of Hajj al-Akbar, the, greatest, the, great, the great Hajj. This is in Surah Tawbah. So it just means linguistically call. But when we say Adhan, as an act of worship, we're talking about a specific act done at a specific time with specific phrases and for the announcement of a specific purpose or specific act, meaning... The, the, what we know as the phrases Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, to the end of it, done at the beginning of prayer times to announce the, en- the entrance of the prayer time and to allow people to come to prayer. So when he says purity linguistically and technically, linguistically and technically, saying, okay, when we say tahara, we don't mean just any cleanliness. There's a technical meaning to cleanliness here. And that is, he says, linguistically, it's cleanliness. But not just any cleanliness. Technically, as a technical term, as a defined term, you know, like in they have in legal drafting, you'll have a capitalized word, and that means it's a defined term in your document. Technically, it is the removal of ritual impurity and the cessation of actual impurity. Now, notice what he says here. Two things, removal, cessation. The removal of ritual impurity means mean that you have to do something to change the state that you're in ritually in order to be clean ritually. And you have to, there has to be a cessation, meaning a cut off, a removal, and or a removal and or cessation, meaning a, 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 a stopping of or a, 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 uh, an expiry of something which is considered impure in order for you to be clean. Now, he doesn't go into the issue of actual impurity at this point, but we will cover it 
in a little bit. And that is when we talk about the types of water. But what he means by this is, look, you want to be clean. This is what you've got to do. You got to make sure that there's nothing filthy on you or on the place that you're praying or on your clothes. And if there was at one time, if enough time has passed where that ceases to exist, then it has become clean. Like if an animal urinated on a, on a piece of, on, a, on the ground. And then enough time passed for that urine to basically evaporate and dissipate and all of the ammonia and everything else and these as if it's not there, then the, 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 the land has become pure again. Now, if we're talking about, you know, if I had, uh, if I had you know, some uh, defecant, some, some dung or something that got on your arm, for example, say you're working on a farm and something got on your arm, right? And it then started to pour rain. And when you looked at your arm after standing in the pouring rain for minutes, then that was no longer on your arm or caught in the, your arm hairs or whatever, then that's the cessation of actual impurity. So do you need to actually go and do an act to then remove something that's not there? No, you don't. But when we talk about the removal of ritual impurity, we mean that this is a spiritual state, a, a legal category or a categorical state that you are in until you do a certain action which removes that state from you, which removes you from that state. So he says, okay, so what are what is ritual impurity? Well, ritual impurity is two types, greater ritual impurity and lesser ritual impurity. What are those defined as? Well, greater ritual impurity are those things that obligate ghusl. So if you, if you have to make ghusl because you have ejaculated, you have had, you have had intercourse even without orgasm, right? You have... Um, there's a number of things that actually will come in the text, right? But those you have you have been on your menses and then that menses ceased, stopped. Then those are things which you have to go and make ghusl. You have to bathe, and ghusl again is, is a technical meaning, linguistic meaning. You then have to bathe to remove that greater ritual impurity. Lesser ritual impurity is that which obligates wudu. So things like urinating, defecating. Passing wind, passing gas, those three things, and a few other things, touching the privates with a, uh, you know, an un- unclothed hand um, or a bare hand, and, and a few other things actually come in the book. Those mean that you have to do a certain act to be able to remove that ritual impurity, take you out of that state, which means that if you're in a state of ritual impurity, then you cannot perform acts in which you should be ritually pure, like prayer, recitation of Qur'an, tawaf, and others. And so this is question number one, and it essentially creates the framework for us to understand the idea of purity under Islamic law. So you are either going to so you're either going to have purity or impurity. You're either going to be clean or not clean. And if you're not clean, then that means you either have a physical impurity on you, which you have to, which has to be removed and or cease to exist, right? On you or on the ground or whatever it is that you want it to be clean. 
or you'll have a ritual impurity, which means it's not an actual, they say jurm, you know, it doesn't have actual substance to it, but it's a state that you find yourselves in, and then you have to do an act that will take you out of that state. And so here we understand that there is purity of body, there is purity of soul, there is purity of, uh, of inanimate objects that are around us. And in the coming questions, we will talk about what are those things which are pure, what are those things which are impure, and how do you purify things which are not necessarily attached to your body physically or do not relate to your spiritual state, to ritual purity or impurity. So with that, we'll conclude. I uh, hope that you enjoy this. Inshallah ta'ala. Let me know from, let me know in the comments on SoundCloud and the podcast is now available through iTunes as well as Google. And I believe that they syndicate to Stitcher and some other radio, some other podcast, um, uh, some other podcast uh, providers. But let me hear from you in the comments, either here or on Facebook or wherever. And let me know what you think about what we're doing. And if you want the book, again, go to Amazon.com and you can buy it, Qadumi's Elementary Primer. You can look up my name, Qadumi's Elementary Hanbali Primer. You can look up Hanbali Primer, H-A-N-B-A-L-I-P-R-I-M-E-R, and follow along. Or you can just listen to this and let me know if you like this. If you want to do it weekly, it's great. If you want to do it every other week, that's great. But I hope that you enjoyed it, and inshallah ta'ala, see you in the next episode. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi